Carolina. Joel. <laughs> Tell me about your earliest memory of play. I think I'm trying to go back to it, and it would be either playing with sand or climbing trees. Oh, yeah. Climbing trees. The challenge of, like, I can do that. Yeah. Yes. Did you ever challenge yourself to see how high you could get? Yes. Not successfully, though. Yeah. <laughs> and sand. What was sand about? Did you live near a beach or something? Yes, I did. I grew up around the beach. Oh, so man. I think my mom says that the first time she took me to the beach in this, like, little island i was five months old so yeah. i'm sure like definitely sand played into my early memories uh -huh. of playing and when you're a kid and you get sand all in your like your 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 skin you know and it's in your your uh bathing suit and oh man that's... i love that i it's funny because people that didn't grow up around sand and like have it bothers them to like walk on sand or like yeah. sand in weird places yeah but to me it's like it's part of who it's... i am how i grew yeah. up it's yeah it's... i can see it everywhere we had a tree in our front yard growing up that i climbed constantly And I loved, I would just climb up there, me and my buddy, he, he lived across the street from me. And so, you know, we're five, six, seven years old. And we just climb up with this tree and sit there for like an hour and just watch people. And we love the feeling of being in the leaves, you know, hidden by the branches and the mm -hmm. leaves and people walking by and not seeing us, you know, and we would just laugh and, but they couldn't see us. And we loved that. Uh, and then at one point I got a big, I slipped on a branch and I got a big cut across my hand. And this was in sixth grade. And so for like half of my sixth grade year, I wore this glove on one hand <laughs> to cover the bandage that I had because I wanted to play on the playground. And with the bandage, when you're swinging on monkey bars, right? It you like, it, 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 yeah. And so my teacher finally goes, Joel, what's up with the glove on the, your hand? You've been wearing this thing for months. I'm like, oh, it's, I got this, you know, wound from climbing my tree anyways we also had uh i don't know if um others who are listening may have had similar trees but they dropped these little spiky green balls okay and so we would have battles during the summer we'd collect all of these green balls off of the yard and put them in buckets and then throw them at each other <laughs> and they were a hard like the size of a golf ball and they were so hard if you got hit in the face with one of those things it hurt like hell it was terrible But those are the best times. Best memories. Yeah. Playing outside, running around, climbing trees, hanging out on the beach, getting sand in your pants. Yes. Good. The power of play. Yeah. And that's what we're talking about today with Emily, right? Emily yes. Boltz. Emily Boltz. Emily is a creative, officially like a creative director at Gensler. She sits in the New York office. Uh, officially, her bio says she's an immersive experience designer. But to me, more than all the official bio titles, Emily is such a good multi-sensory storyteller. I think like that defines so much who she is and what she does. And I think the power of play is a big part of who she is and how she approaches the world. Yeah, this conversation is so rad. We talk about play. We talk about food. We talk about embodiment. We talk about meaning. We talk about 
the political act of eating and coming together and the intersection of social media and uh, Silicon Valley culture and uh, personal story and background. There's just so much here. It's a really fascinating conversation and uh, we know you're going to love it. So welcome to The Fuzz. Welcome to The Fuzz, a Gensler podcast exploring intuitive curiosities. I am Carolina Montilla. And I'm Joel Ferris. Okay, welcome, Emily. Thank you for being uh, part of this podcast today. I think your story and your background is a fascinating one for me and, and I think for many other people and on how you use that power of play in, in your work today. So I think it would be good to generally start with your story. Uh, tell us a little bit about you and, and how you got here. Sure. Well, my name is Emily Baltz. I work as a creative director in the New York Digital Experience Design Studio here at Gensler. And uh, prior to Gensler for the last 20 years, I've worked at the intersection of art, culture, hospitality, food, and performance. <laughs> so it's a big soup. <laughs> and at the foundation of that, my real interest has always been in how we tell stories. You know, that's not a new thing for, I think, any creative person or maybe even any human on earth. But I think that the stories that we tell are um, the people that we become. We've seen that throughout time. You know, all civilizations are built on some kind of mythology that helps us make sense of our world. And then as I've lived my own life, I've also started to realize that really the stories that we feel are maybe even more the people that we become. And so how we experience story became something that was really more and more interesting to me as an individual for how it affected my own meaning making in my own life, as well as a creative professional and what that meant for how everything from brands to art to industry participates in culture and society. And so I originally studied screenwriting and contemporary dance for this fascination you know, of storytelling, which at the time I didn't know that those things would eventually come together. But if I look backwards, you know, 25 years later, what I can see is that I have this original foundation in classic forms of storytelling, filmmaking, you know, being a pretty linear visual and narrative form of storytelling, and then dance, which is a really embodied form of storytelling. And today, those two things come together in what I would call experience design, and maybe more specifically, embodied experience design, where we as designers and artists bring people into stories now. We don't just tell stories. We don't just show stories. We help people live stories. And I think experience design at its best really functions both in classic ways as taking someone through maybe a beginning, a middle, and an end of something, um, but also allows now for things like agency, engagement, interaction, co-creation, self-expression. So we really start to bring a sense of, you know, of, of a, a more symbiotic relationship that involves the body. Because when you do something, the most powerful way to do that is do it with all of your senses, to really live it, to feel it, to, to see yourself in it. And so those are some foundational things that, that brought me here. <laughs> Along the way, I practically got um, 
master's degree in industrial design. And in my thesis, which was in, in the year 2005, I've also always been interested in new forms. And, um, and I started looking through the lens of industrial design and materiality and seeing that though I was surrounded by, you know, incredible chairs and tables and books and all, all the things, all the stuff that designers make, the stuff of how designers feel was often more around like lunchtime and dinner and breakfast, you know, these universal rituals that were experiences in our everyday. And, and those were all centered around food. So I did a thesis at the time, which explored how food could be used as a material for design, specifically through the lens of American culture. I am half French and half American. And one of the greatest differences that I found going between the two cultures as a kid was not how people talked, not how people dressed, not even how buildings looked in different cities, but really how people behaved. And one of the biggest differences that I found also as a child was in the way that we gathered around tables and ate. The American experience radically different than a French experience. And so from that point of view, which was personal and affected, again, the meaning that I had started to, to make and question in my own life, I thought, what better material to start to explore than the material of food, not just as an ingredient as like, could I make this, you know, donut stretchy? Wow. <laughs> but also like, how can this material be a medium for experience? And in those experiences, how do we design rituals, interactions, exchanges that start to create identity, culture, and community. And so from that interest, these are all, you know, again, original pillars of what ended up coming together, you know, years later in what we now call experience design. And so my specific interest is in how the senses can affect experiences, you know, just like when we eat, we don't just see or taste, we smell, we hear, we feel. It's a real symphony of all of our senses. And together, that can start to create not just meaning, but also emotionality. And, and that also, I think, and really memory. starts to... And memories. Yeah, of course, smell being linked to our limbic system is the portal for memories. So that's a really long-winded way to tell you how I got here. And along the way, I've had great fun in, um, you know, figuring out how we can also bring joy into these moments, because who doesn't need that? And so I... Um, got really well known about 10 years ago for sticking sensors into food <laughs> as like a sixth sense. How could we bring delight into the everyday? And I uh, made a lickable ice cream orchestra that when you lick creates music so you can play through these really childlike interactions of licking um, a cotton candy theremin, which when you spin cotton candy through an invisible interface, just like a theremin generates music as well as an immersive visual landscape around you, a smell organ that plays the wheel of human feelings through scent, sound, and light. You know, these were all, again, explorations of how do we make meaning, deconstruct meaning, remake meaning as people, and do that together and make it fun. I love that in all of those experiences, there is also always that communal factor to things that isn't like yes you do experience it as an individual and at a certain individual level but you're also making music together or you know this orchestra of licking ice cream I, I think you have mentioned about like using food as a 
kind of a medium and a metaphor for some of your installations. And I always have this idea of like, we typically tell kids like, don't play with your food. Like your food is to eat. And then as a grown up, you create this fascinating experiences that are multi-sensory that somehow you play with food and you have fun with strangers and friends. So I think to me, that's, amazing to do as a grown-up like you you kind of have permission to play with your food and make something out of it um so do you get inspired or how do you go back to finding like that child in you to say like yes i have permission to do this and play with this and play with food or play in general yeah Permission is a great word there. You know, I'm interested in permission because with permission usually comes possibility. And in possibility, you can find invention. And that is probably one of the most human acts. And we need it more than ever, you know, as we look forward at our potentially apocalyptic futures. You know, So <laughs> that's a little side note in it. How do I get to that? I have no idea. I wish I could give you a prescription. You know, I just like it. My brain likes it. I like that state of being. I love being around kids. I have a five-year-old son right now who's just a source of real inspiration because there still are so many possibilities. And one of the definitions of play, out, you know, outside of these sort of funny, happy, silly definitions is moving through and, and playing with like, I'm playing with holding all these balls up at the same time. I'm, I'm playing with the arrangement of this chair, you know? And that's, I think, a really interesting definition for me because it's linked to ideation. It's linked, again, to, you know, to creativity. But when you play with something, it's not just because it's fun. Usually it ends up being fun because, mm -hmm. you know, having a lot of options is, for me at least, is fun. Um, but when you think about it through the lens of design, play can also be optionality, multiple permissions, again, that word possibility. And, and movement. And so it's very difficult to just play in your mind. Like mm -hmm. the best kind yes. of play is using your body, right? We see that in playgrounds. We see that in games, you know? And so those are some principles where you think about it is like, how do you create, how do you create permission and possibilities therein in the most impactful way? Usually you want to get people up and moving and doing something. Um, and that's where I think a lot of my work comes from in a basic framework, like that would be an underlying framework of how I get, maybe if I do that, if I apply it onto myself, maybe I do know how to do that actually. And that is, you know, don't sit, stand, <laughs> draw with your hand, not on the computer, yes. you know, a classic like ideation principles. But then when you make something too, and that can be everything from a dinner party to, you know, a date to a whole institution. I like to take a point of entry first through gesture. You know, I think about like, are, are we sitting? What are we doing? What are we actually doing as people? And in a very primitive way, you know, are we holding something? Are we shaking something? Are we jumping on something? Are we going up? Are we going down? You know, the more you can start to affect the physical engagement within any kind of experience journey, 
the more it will also be memorable because people will be in different postures using different parts of their body. So that's a real way also of starting to create engagement and getting to that idea of, of play, like moving through. How do we move through something? How do we move through an idea? How do we move through a relationship? How do we move through a space? That's a little bit on what we touch on when we discuss it, like learning spaces as well and the kind of the power of the extended mind and how we learn through more than absorbing information through a computer, like moving through space in relationships with people, moving through different contexts. Uh, so I think like that relationship between learning and play as well as a way to create memories or something that like this milestones in your brain um, is so powerful when you think about it. Yeah, well, I've got, you know, I have to shout out to my mom. My mother was a Montessori teacher. So that's a classic pedagogy that's experiential. That Maria Montessori, you know, yeah, she famously said the hand is the instrument of the mind. Well, you know, so is the toe and the elbow and the neck. And, <laughs> and that is, that was so much of the ideology and also the, the lived experience that I had as a child. And you do learn most powerfully through experience. I teach uh, an experience design class at, at the SVA MFA Products of Design program. And that class asks students to do physical embodied experiences in public space. And every year, everyone looks for the formula, like without a doubt, you know, no, 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 no. What, how do I do to like be, what do I do to be successful? What do I do? And the sneaky part of that class is that there is like, I will not give them a successful framework because that's not, because that will not be success. There is no way to do it unless you experience it, you have friction, you have challenge. And that's a personal lens onto growth and development, you know? And then, and any practitioner will tell you that, you know, you only get better because you failed. Um, and you also usually only have great experiences when there is a little bit of friction in them too. When there is a moment of negotiation or, or challenge, so I also like to think about challenging, especially like hyper-capitalist ideas of ease and of seamlessness and frictionless and, you know, all the buzzwords that the Silicon Valley has put so high up in esteem in terms of what we should want as people. And I don't think that that is a road to growth and development. Just like you said, right? You have to learn. We have to learn by doing. And so when we think about that through the lens of experience design, usually meaningful and transformational experiences have a dramatic climax, have a certain challenge in them. And how do we start to apply that idea to our practice as we make experiences in time and space? You know, it's, it's sometimes not the simplest, the easiest. You know, there is a moment of, of serendipity, of slight discomfort. You know, I, I like awkward feelings for that reason because they challenge me you know they make me grow oh that's like a little flag that's like <laughs> the moment of, of negotiation with yourself yeah. almost yeah 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 you know alan chachanoff who leads the mfa products of design program at sva he what i loved about when he introduced this pedagogy 10 years ago was that as designers, his grand statement was, we are not in the business of designing products anymore. We're in the, dis in the business of designing flows and negotiations. And that shift 
you know, as we also are, I think, post-product, material product, let's say, really does start to focus on human-centered design in a new way that then has to also embrace things like emotions, right? That, that some of the consequences of making these things, not some, all of the consequences of making everything usually brings up a feeling. And so we start to take that into account too, as our lens goes from, you know, product and linearity into, you know, into experiences and negotiations. I mean, I think that some of the things that you've talked about in regard to food and embodiment and the senses and friction. There's a lot here that to me flies in the face of, and you hinted at it with, you know, kind of that, that technotopia capitalistic uh, proclivity towards optimization and efficiency and seamlessness, et cetera. For example, there's all of these new food brands coming out of Silicon Valley that are like fuel and it's like a shake that you drink three times a day, right? So that you can be more productive. Like don't waste time eating a meal, just drink, drink your meal while you're working, right? And I find that so absolutely terrible and terrifying. And it just continues to perpetuate that nefarious Cartesian duality of body and mind and so I love some of the things that you're speaking to and putting your finger on in regard to how do we reintegrate our body and mind in a holistic embodied manner? We're not just a brain that happens to be in a meat suit, right? Like we're more than that. And modern theory of mind is really beginning to recognize that our selfhood is a negotiation with our environment, right? As a physical entity negotiating with a physical entity. and that it's the physicality and the physical nature of our reality that ultimately shapes our sense of self and personhood, that consciousness is an emergent, emergent phenomenon of this negotiation. Um, that's not something contained to the brain, but it's actually something that is permeates the parameters, exterior parameters of our skin. And I think food is such a critical embodied experience that we have as humans that we've often rush through or rush past. And I'm curious if you could go back to that statement you made about the difference between eating behaviors in the U.S. and in France and speak more to some of those differences and how might food as a ritual, universal ritual that, that uh, you know, I've heard folks say, that, for example, you know, the table is the original social media platform, right? How might food in a, a a reclaiming of the ritual of food, even in enterprise environments or in the world with our families or in our communities, actually be a channel for embodied healing, connection, belonging, community in a manner that is conducive to our creativity and our imaginatory capacity. I don't know. There's a lot there, but I'm curious if you could just share your your impression of all of that and your response and yeah. what your thoughts are. For sure. There's so much in there. It could be like another two-hour conversation. I love it. Um, I'll say one thing in response, maybe that like I love to eat, but I'm not so much interested in taste. So I think that is maybe number one as a response. And if you think about those two examples that you shared early on, you know, the like the protein shake, you know. The, the dystopian future that we've always had that's been like, take this pill and you'll never have to eat again. You know? <laughs> yeah. um, 
Like, I hope I, it, this is provocative, but I hope that never goes away because we need that as friction to remind us of the other side, you know, and we're, that's timeless. That's also, I think, a timeless human condition. And the idea that we're going to reach some kind of utopia where everybody is going to live in this perfect way is not so, because there is no such thing as perfect, nor should there be. Like, the interesting part is the tension between those and then how we negotiate that and grow. And so when I think about food rituals and experiences, you know, what are the new rituals and experiences that can be metaphor and medium for for creating that, you know, that our response, like I have always liked to put myself in a position of provocation because it creates those feelings of like, of risk, of discomfort, et cetera. But it also becomes an engine for for growth, you know? And so one of my specific interests was American food culture because, and this is hyper stereotypical too, so let's all take this with a grain of salt, but growing up, you know, in the 70s and the 80s in the middle of America, I grew up south of Chicago, we didn't eat like, quote unquote, you know, traditional Americans. <laughs> But a lot of the friends' houses that I went to, you know, was usually like there were a lot of like everything was prepackaged. Usually there is a ton of like TV dinners still around. There was still TV, by the way, you know, <laughs> um, and it was fast and it was modern and it was easy, you know, and like that meant that moms because moms were still the ones cooking dinner, didn't have to spend a lot of time in the kitchen. And in many ways, like that kind of contemporary approach was freeing. You know, like all I wanted to do was go to my cousin Karen's house and eat Wonder Bread mayonnaise sandwiches and drink sugar water and watch cartoons because it was new. Mm. And I was like, what is this? You know, and and in the French construct, dinner was a long affair. We were eating at 8 p.m. every night. There was salad in the middle of everything. There were usually a couple forks around. And then going to France was even more involved and more ritualized, you know, and a certain way of being. And through that comes a respect for history, uh, a moment and a time to be able to transfer, you know, everything from ideology to, um, you know, to belief systems, which may be more gentler way to say it, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and so, but there's nothing, what I want to maybe bring out here is that I don't think there's anything wrong with either of those. Those are rituals and behaviors that are consequences of economic, social constructs, you know, the way that the countries right. were built and, and what kind of expression and behaviors we want to promote as a collective. And so thinking about where we are today, you know, the superfood shake is, in, is, the technolo is the technological age, you know, faster, better, stronger, it's optimized. We might call it the masculine outside of body expression. And then we have slower, fl more flowing, like we're seeing so much of a return to indigenous traditions and rituals, you know, and those implicate time and labor in a very, very different way. And so as we think about what kind of moments we want to create in our own individual lives or in enterprise settings, you know, should you have the great opportunity, you know, to make a kitchen or a cafe, like it, I think it should be thoughtfully of the time and place. And then knowing that it can be such a generative experience that it really will affect people. Like how you eat is how you behave. I deeply believe that. And the interesting thing about, I think the interesting thing about food is that because we do it, you know, depending on where we live and who we are, one, two, three, four, five times a day, 
it becomes like a little training ground for behavior. And that I think is really interesting through the lens of like the design of humans and society. You know, that's why it's so powerful as a medium because you're constantly repeating it. So it's, it's a mantra, it's a practice. It's, it really is sort of circuit training for our societies. And when you think about it through that lens, like that's where I find it a beautiful metaphor for experience design because yeah. it, there's such richness, such richness within it. Yeah. I don't know if that explicitly answered all, all your questions, but it's a reflection back of some of the things that inspired me when I was listening to you. Yeah, I love that. And that's, I don't know if I necessarily had a tidy question in there, but I think that that's really powerful. And what I'm picking up there is something that we talk about a lot is this idea that your paradigm shapes your practice and your practice shapes your paradigm, right? And so there's that yep. relational modulation and that when we say paradigm, we say it's belief systems and it's conditions. And so often we're like obsessed with outcomes, but we neglect designing conditions. And I think mm -hmm. that if we can design for conditions based on a socially negotiated and agreed upon aspirational outcome, that the likelihood we'll achieve the outcome will be much, much greater than had we just pursued it in the first place. Uh, because it does require an attunement of behaviors and beliefs. Um, there is that circuit training, so to speak. I love that metaphor. And food is so central to, I mean, the. I'm thinking about my own childhood experiences. You know, family dinner time was critical to the day because that was the single 25 minutes that we had together as a family, you know, um, and as a time to just pause and connect. And it and it imbued me with a belief system um, and a practice around food and the importance and centrality of food in family. And uh, so I think that's I think that translates to other areas of life as well. And I think that's that's really interesting to highlight. Yeah, yeah, very much so. You know, and, and gathering is something that we need also more than ever. You know, this conversation is being had in 2023. We experienced two years of really severe isolation. And I think experiencing that negative space for a lot of people revealed how social we are as a species. That, that hasn't changed. Our biology didn't evolve there. And so these spaces have a lot of meaning in them. And... um. And again, and, and how we gather, you know, how, how we gather is, is who we become. Yes. I yeah. you just said something around also like food as a medium, but then you don't care so much about taste. And to a certain extent, I relate to that so much because to me, it's about the ritual of gathering and coming together way beyond the taste sometimes and perhaps it is very different than joel uh i'm not a cook i'm a terrible cook actually and i survive on cheese and crackers but i will invite people to cheese and crackers all the time just as an it. excuse to <laughs> gather and i'll yeah. give you themes about the cheese and crackers only as an excuse to create a ritual around things so again food becomes that channel and the taste might be cheese and crackers but 
I'll give you something to gather around it that will create a memory and a, an experience beyond the taste. That's so funny. Yeah, yeah. that's great. I want to come over for cheese and crackers. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're all looking for an excuse to be together and then looking for an excuse to be alone. You know, mm -hmm. like that's the dance of, of humanity. That's a little philosophical to say. And well, then I think real. there's also, yeah, yeah, it's real. I, I mean, it we're is all real. seeking yeah. some sense of homeostasis, right? Like it's really about we're we're trying to regulate ourselves in one degree or another. And in some cases, regulation means we need community. In other cases, it means we need solitude. But yeah, and the idea too that homeostasis is a fixed point is so it's not is so un right like, right. When we talked earlier, flows and negotiations, like it's constantly right. a dance of like trying to shift and move and rebalance and, and it is, you know, delightful and exhausting. But that I think is a little bit of a mindset shift as we are always recalibrating now, yeah. especially as we start to see how things move with, you know, the, like we have access to more data than ever before. We have access to each other more than ever before. Um, so I think that's a little bit of, you know, that is a, that is a point that's maybe a shift, like a lexicon shift in terms of finding solutions. And then when it gets applied to things like, you know, like we work in the built environment. And so what does it mean for a permanent structure when ever more resilience, responsivity, flow is really something that that is not even just a a, a future scenario, it is now. And so how do we start thinking in, in those lenses? when we start to design our spaces and our experiences, you know, that's something that I think we talk about every day. Yeah. What's the, okay. <laughs> so I also love eating, but I also love taste. Like that's actually for me, the more yeah. important thing. <laughs> like, Good. I mean, I uh, love taste too. Don't tell me. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. I, um, <laughs> I have a hard time eating things that I don't think taste good. And that's why I don't give my kids, you know, much heat for not eating things that they don't think taste good. Although I do push them. And I wonder if, um, for example, much of my community, the people whom I call my closest friends are people who share my love for food and wine. This is what mm. we do together. We eat yep. and drink together. And that's that's why we're friends, right? Yep. And so there's something about our common taste that becomes a focal point of affinity that is the connective tissue in our relationship. And I wonder if, I don't know, is that something that is innate in the human condition? It's to bond over the consumption of food? Or is it something that is socially uh constructed and negotiated in a particular time and place uh temporally um and if it's the first then is it something that we could design for more intentionally well i think that you know the simple answer is that we became human when we invented fire you know so cooking maybe more than eating Right. was the moment where that act became quote unquote civilized. But I think even before then, food is survival. 
you know, like if you don't eat, you die. So right. whoever brought food back and shared that collective, you know, a group of people, a group of hunters or whatever it is, like that is a bond. So I think that there's something, you know, very, very primitive that speaks directly to that. And then as we civilize more, you know, we're still like our biology has not evolved. Like that's right. <laughs> our our intellect, our creativity, our our environment, like all of that is evolved. But like when you eat, you still feed that central, like that central primitive nervous system that says, Oh, I am a I'm alive and we are together. Like maybe, you know, I'm yeah, not yeah. I'm no scientist there, but but I think that that feeds um socially like a very, very primitive part of us. And then to the point of like shared taste, you know, I always wonder about that because I taste really is constructed and it is a perception. And so why do some things taste good to one party and not to another? And usually that is like some, sometimes I could be biological, you know, because mm -hmm. of allergies or a body rejecting something. And our our sense of taste is programmed to protect us from death. So that can be why something tastes bad or smells bad. But then if you think about like any form of like fermentation or rot, which is now also like a prized taste, like if you have a really developed palate, right, you can eat like the grossest cheese in the world. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so there's that other part of like how how taste has become, you know, civilized and um and learned, you know, like it's nurtured, it's not right. nature in that sense. So I think it has a lot to do like where we grow up and what we're exposed to and economic what position, status. economic status, you know, we're yep. also in a place right now where food is so closely tied to economic status. And with the right of social media, like, you know, what dish you take a picture of means like what kind of caste system you live in. Right. So there's a real political act within that too. Yeah. You know, um, and kind of social performance that goes along with it. But that's also not new. Like, you know, Louis the Fourteenth and the Palais de Versailles, like famously, you know, had incredible food sculptures. Napoleon used diplomatic dinners as like a performance of power. You know, he had this famous pastry chef, Antoine Carême, who was the first to build these incredible sugar sculptures not because they were to be eaten, but because they were a demonstration of his wealth and his ability mm -hmm. to own this much sugar. And at a diplomatic dinner, that meant the empire was the strongest. So there's all sorts of like really wonderful points of entry into like what it means to taste. Yeah. That said, like a delicious meal above all is delicious, you know? Yeah. Like it feeds something, like there is also the art of cooking you know, and I have like my, the, my favorite people in the world to work with are chefs because, mm -hmm. because their focus is pleasure. That's right. You know, and that's like, that's an extraordinary kind of art. Yeah. Well, and, and expertise some of the, and technique. Yeah. Right. And some of the best, most delicious meals I've had, even at Michelin star restaurants, are just a, new way of presenting something that's been around for a really long time and it's yeah. fundamentally simple in in its nature for yeah. example you know taking corn and making a pasta with corn like it's corn has been around in indigenous cultures in north america for thousands of years 
and the preparation it wasn't even that inventive it's just the way it's presented that creates this aesthetic value beyond just the taste um and i remember that corn dish i think about it all the time <laughs> because of how amazing it was right um yeah and there's yeah those those dishes that are often just you know things that transcend economic stratification um and because they i think resonate at a very innate level to some degree yeah I would call that delight. Like I mm. think a lot about mm -hmm. uh, delight usually functions around something that is known and then changing our perception of it without losing its knownness. Right, right, right. Yeah. So like, and that's a real, uh, that's a beautiful little trick in design, you know, and in all, on all art is to be able to see something anew for the first time. You know, when you talked earlier, Carolina, about how do you become a child or like, how do you find that? That's the thing that, literally delights me about seeing children is that they're always seeing it anew for the first time you know you could be playing with this rock but like this time it's a car oh no now it's a chicken now the, the power of imagination of yeah things yeah yeah and that can happen at all stratas of society you know and that really is where a focus on creativity and imagination comes into play um but that's a real that's i think a device of of delight and and you're right, great chefs do that, especially with the introduction of molecular gastronomy, which allowed mm -hmm. us to like change textures and shapes and, you know, make a carrot into a cloud. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. 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 Which I think is like a big part of things, like that process when we start getting into like molecular cooking. But then I keep thinking you mentioned like I have these memories on the 80s going to my cousin's house and eating perhaps you know drinking sugary water and that still created a memory on you and I I think that's to me the multi-dimensional aspects of food that it can be molecular and exciting and Michelin awarded and it can be a microwave thing that created an experience for you. Uh, I think Jose Andres at South by Southwest was talking about food as like the medium that is this the, one of the simplest answers to very complex problems. You know, he shows up in many places that are like after a hurricane or something and a plate of good like rice and beans can give you delight and comfort in a human level that nothing else can give you at that moment that society could be super extremely overwhelmed by other things so to me like all those aspects of food from the very simple to the very complex um it's it's amazing as a medium as a thing yeah. in society yeah, that's right that's right yeah and it's important to think of it as medium because really what's in that is like, you know, a plate of food in that scenario that you just described is a hug and also is presence. Like I'm holding time and space for you right now. And the, I think that's what we all want as, as people, you know, and that happens to show up in rice and beans maybe, but it's the prop for the experience. If we think about this through the lens of the theater of life and all of the daily dramas that get acted out, 
you know, th those are Russell Wright, who was a famous American industrial designer in the 50s and the 60s. He would say that the dinner table was the stage for the daily dramas of life. And, and then you think then about like, well, so the tabletop is the props for that stage. And I love that metaphor because you then start to see how, you know, the, the place, the props, the people and the processes all work together in this orchestra of meaning to create the scenes of our lives. And, and again, like that idea is not an, is not a new idea since the dawn of like Greco-Roman civilization we've been putting on plays and, and before then, you know, <laughs> but here is like a little toolkit for us to think about how we arrange them, how we make meaning, the consequences of that meaning, you know, and, and where we can show up. And, and I think showing up like to help, that was what was attractive to me about design, for example, is that it's needs-based and there is an element of service that changes the quality of, of an individual's life. And so being in service of our human experience is something that I think designers, you know, in the most utopian of ways are all drawn to the discipline for that reason, right? And there's always a lot of conflict in there and questions, you know, that's natural. But I think that there's an element of that too, that we can think about where food also becomes that a really apt metaphor or medium for it too, because we're always in service when we're cooking hospitality as an experiential modality is built on that. Like, how can we be of service? Mm -hmm. And deconstructing those experiences starts to help us see these kind of frameworks that are universal and that apply to, to designing experiences of care, to being in service of others. You know, and that, that changes the fabric of, of a life and of a place, I think. Yeah. Emily, it was delightful to have this conversation with you. We covered Likewise. play, embodiment, meaning, food, community connection. There's a lot here that uh, I think folks will be able to walk away with. So thank you for sharing and holding this time with us to have this conversation. We, we're really grateful for you. Oh, thank you. Next time we'll do an audio cooking show, huh? Ooh, perfect. <laughs> All right. Looking Such a forward pleasure. To it. You've been listening to The Fuzz. Gensler podcast exploring intuitive curiosities. The Fuzz is hosted by Carolina Montilla and Joel Ferris. Production by Jared Price. Brand designed by Krista Reeder. The theme music was written by Ido Maimon. For more on all things fuzzy, please visit our substack, thefuzz.substack.com. Thanks for listening.